Now, the legendary Bob Marley would have turned 72 today. And uh, my last guest uh, on the show this evening is a journalist, broadcaster and writer and former senior writer for The Enemy, who's lauded as being one of the journalists who have rewritten the book on on music journalism. And it was while he was at The Enemy uh, that he forged a relationship with Bob Marley and would later go on to pen the reggae star's biography, Bob Marley, The Untold Story. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined on the line from London by Chris Salovich. Salzovich. Uh Chris, hello. I'm pronouncing your name completely incorrectly. Please do let Salovich. me know. Salovich. Salovich. But I'm, I'm as delighted to be here as uh, you are. Are you? <laughs> Even though we've woken you up. <laughs> no, no, you haven't, you haven't woken me up. I'm I'm sitting on my sofa watching for the beginning of the Super Bowl. Ah, indeed, of course, the Super Bowl. In fact, I'll turn it off so I can concentrate. Would you? <laughs> there we go. I've just done it. You're a star. Thank you so much. Uh, listen, so... It, the late great Bob Marley would have turned 72 uh, today. Not today in England yet, but it's today over here. Uh, yeah. So uh, just just tell us about your relationship with Bob Marley. How did you first How did you first meet and then what inspired you to then go on and write? Uh, the OK, well, I, I loved Bob Marley. I, I'd been the first. I'd seen him many times, including when he first came to London uh, and played four nights at the Speakeasy Club near Oxford Circus promoting the Catch a Fire album, and I went to see all his tours. But I didn't meet him um, until 1979. I'd been to Jamaica for the first time in um, uh, February 1978. I'd I'd gone, actually, with John Lydon, uh, Johnny Rotten from the Sex Mm. Pistols, uh, when he was sent down there by Richard Branson, uh, after the group had split up, and um, and he was was sent there to sign up. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's winter here in London, you see. Indeed. <coughs> um, to sign people up. <coughs> so I'd written up what I'd done for the NME, some very long pieces. Anyway, a year later exactly, February 1979, I go back to Jamaica. And um, it's an Island Records junket uh, about the group Inner Circle. But I get, I get there and I arrive there. And I wake up very early, jet-lagged, and I think, oh, I know what I should do. I'm in the Sheraton Hotel, which is where a lot of people used to come to be signed, in fact. And uh, I take a taxi up to 56 Hope Road, which is Bob's mm-hmm. headquarters. And uh, there's only a... It's, it's quarter to eight. And there's um, a group of what look like some tough ghetto youth hanging around. And there's a woman there sweeping... Uh, the steps with a, a bees and broom, her hair pulled back into locks, long skirt. So I, I talk to her, I show her what I've written. And in fact, over the years, I've become good friends with her. Uh, her name is Diane Jobson. Mm. She's actually the in-house lawyer for the Tough Gang, Tough Gong operation. Yeah. As I'm talking to her, into the yard sweeps a black BMW with tinted windows, Ethiopian flag flying on it. Uh, driven by a beautiful girl, and I can see on the other side, because the, the window's down, that is sitting Bob Marley, who gets wow. out. And uh, anyway, I go over to him, I show him what I've written, and uh, he shows genuine interest, and we chat for a bit. And I, I noticed, because I was a bit right on, I had this animal rights <laughs> badge on, which you wouldn't really have seen in in Jamaica at that time, and who took some considerable interest in it, because... Bob, of course, was also vegetarian. Anyway, after a little while, and he starts, he's reading my articles. After a little while, 
he says, we've got to go somewhere now. And he and the youth go and get into a minibus. And then he sits in the, in the door and waves, come with us, come with us, come with us. So I go and sit next to him. And uh, we're driving through Kingston. I say, where are we going? He says, gun court, mon. The gun court was a place where, which had been established by the Prime Minister Michael Manley, and it was a place of detention for anyone with any part of a gun. And you'd be there for indefinite detention or possibly to be executed. And I'd said, so why, are we, why are we going there to see about a youth them lock up? This guy is actually called Michael Bernard, and he was a cause celebre. And uh, he'd, he was general, gen, he'd been a political activist. It was, it was generally believed he'd been fitted up, that he hadn't done the crime that he was supposed to have done. So we go into the gun court, which is like built like a concentration camp, surround, you know, uh, 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 towers with, you know, with, 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 with sentries and, and, and machine guns and you know, barbed wire all around. And what's running through your mind at this point? I'm wondering, what are we doing here? <laughs> I was thinking, wow, what's going on? Yeah. I, I didn't have, I haven't even really had my breakfast. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, we go in. So, we, we sit down with the governor and Bob. Uh, what I expect him to be is like some firebrand uh, finger wagger. No. Mm. It's not like that at all. It's very humble, very quiet. Um, everyone's a little bit nervous. And Michael Bernard, this guy, is brought in. And um, I was confused as to what the purpose of this was, really. Mm. You asked me what I was going through my mind. I was confused as to what the purpose of this was. And then I realized, actually, the whole idea is just to let it be known that this guy hasn't been forgotten about. That's all it is. We're only there for about... 20, 25 minutes. Then we leave, and I go back to 56 Hope Road, Bob's headquarters. He says, hang around. And I hung around for about another three weeks. Wow. Interviewed him four times, went to rehearsals, uh, live rehearsals, went to recording sessions, interviewed him a couple of times, uh, went to a 12 Tribes dance with him in the hills. Great, great experience. And, and one thing I always remember is that when I was leaving, I was going to New York, and uh, so I had a coat with me, a thick raincoat. Mm. And, uh, and, and I stop, we stop on the way to the airport to, to do a, a, another little interview. And I put my bag down and my coat on top of it. And then Bob goes and picks them both up and takes them into the shade of the, the porch of the house, which you can't imagine many rock stars doing, being mm. so thoughtful to do that. Mm. And in the same way, it seemed manner as his you know, rather timorous, hesitant approach, you know, in, in the gun court towards the governor, that also, I, I, that shows his kind of great humility and, and, and soul, really, to me. Indeed, indeed. What, what, do you, what was the thing that surprised you most about Bob Marley during the time that you spent time with him? Was it that humility? Well, well, it's that humility. Also, actually, one thing that I didn't say when I first met him, I'm surprised Bob Marley's quite short. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, Bob Marley's only about five foot four, <laughs> which I wasn't really expecting. No. I mean, to be quite honest, that really, oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. Extreme. Bob Marley was no. short. Well, you learn something not, every day. Not many people know that. Not many exactly. people know we that. Know <laughs> we know that now. 
Wow. Yeah, I was, okay. I was surprised. Yeah. I was genuinely surprised. But, but, but also, I'll <clears throat> tell you one thing about him. Like, as I said, his hesitant manner. You know, in when he's got his musicians around him, Bob is not, you know, the centre of attention. You know, people are talking and, you know, uh, rapping between themselves. Or, you know, someone might be holding court. Bob isn't really doing that. He's sitting back, you know, with his, with his chin between his thumb and, and his forefinger, in that rather familiar manner you will have seen mm-hmm. in the photographs of him. He's being quite pensive. He's absorbing what's going on. He's also quite funny. He has a sense of humour. I can't think of any sort of Bob Molly jokes offhand, but I know, <laughs> you know, he was quite, I mean, he was quite, he was a, you know, he has, a, he has the warmth of humour about him. Mm, mm. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating. What what was it then? You said that you were you were writing a couple of pieces um, and you interviewed him a couple of times. Presumably, that wasn't the point at which you decided to write a book about him. No, no, no. I mean, I kept going back. I kept going back to Jamaica, and actually, I've lived in Jamaica in the mid nineties. I worked on um, a couple of film projects. Mm. I wrote a film called Third World Cop, and. Um, I, I went back, you know, specifics of Bob Mission, for example, when the Confrontation album came out, the posthumous album. Um, oh, I'll tell you one thing. You know, you asked me what, what struck me about Bob. Mm. He looked very, the first, that time in February uh, uh, 79, he looks very strained. Strained. I noted that. He looked very strained and drained. Mm. Mm. I was kind of surprised. Right. And it's only... Um, it's kind of 18 months later, just over 18 months later, that he's diagnosed with cancer, right. with fatal cancer. Yeah. Indeed. So, so anyway, so I got. So the reason I refer to that, of course, is the next time I go back, it's the confrontation album, which is coming out, which is the first posthumous yeah. album. But as I was, but in, in, during that period in the 90s, I would hear plenty of stories, you know, all the time, little stories or big stories, you know. Oh, this is the woman who Bob used to get his uh, goat's milk from, or, you know, the story of what really happened when Peter Tosh was killed. You know, so all manner of stuff I would hear. And I thought, I've got all this, this is fantastic information. And I also had access to, you know, most of the family, really. Mm. You know, they, we seemed to get on, basically. So that's why I decided to write the book. And you have to forgive me. Was he? Uh, he was married. He wasn't married at that time, or was he married at that? Time? Yeah, he was. Well, he was married to Rita. He's he was married always to married to Rita. Right. They right. never divorced. They never divorced. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and you met Rita, presumably. Yeah, yeah. And I what, like Rita. What do you? What do you make of uh, various rumours that fly around that suggest that Rita had something to do with his death? No, I think it's complete nonsense. Nonsense, presumably. Yeah, <laughs> nonsense, presumably. Nonsense. I'd have I to mean, ask. I had to know, ask. Why, why, you know, why would you... I mean, just on a purely practical level, why would you kill the golden calf? You know what I mean? Sure. No. <laughs> Quite no, right. It doesn't make any sense. Indeed, indeed. Um, but she continues to... His legacy sort of lives on and she continues to, to run his foundation, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It has been... It has been was living in Ghana for quite some time, mm, mm. till recently, but it hasn't been too well of late, I gather. And what was what was what's what's Rita like? You said you liked yeah, her. Yeah, Rita's very. No, I like Rita. She's a very open, warm woman. 
I mean, it's as simple as that, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, and his mum also was fantastic. Mrs. Booker was fantastic. Yeah. Talk a little bit, if you will. A few times. Will you talk a little bit? No, no. Will you talk a little bit about? um, I've sort of I've read various things that that Bob would get. um, People would sort of shout at Bob in 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 Kingston uh, regarding the colour of his skin because he was he was mixed race. Um, Did did that (coughs) impact on him at all? Yeah, I think it did. In fact, that is one thing Rita will talk about at mm. length, you know, which is that, you know, um, I mean, the skin colour thing is complex Indeed. in Jamaica. Um, and, you know, not not very admirable the way people, you know, behave towards it. But um, in downtown Kingston, where Trenchtown was, mm. to which to which... Bob moved, you know, when he's about 11, 12, from the country. Um, most people are dark-skinned. And if you're light-skinned, you're assumed to be, you know, an uptown person. You know, you're supposed to have, you know, you're supposed to be affluent. Mm. But, of course, Bob wasn't. And, um, but I think, actually, more, what, you know, Mortimer Planner, who was the, uh, the Rastafarian leader who was who was who'd been to Ethiopia? Who was the man who led Haile Selassie down the plane, mm-hmm. down the plane steps when he came to Jamaica in, in April 1966? <clears throat> he was like a father figure to Bob for some time, mm. and uh, he said, you know, Bob's thing was like, although he had it was given a bit of a rough time as a kid, and it hardened him, I think, but actually also, you know, it also isolated him, but isolated him into finding out who he was, you know, <coughs> creatively as much as culture, you know, creatively, really, you mm, know, mm. That, that's where he found himself. I mean, <coughs> Planner said, well, his mother, you know, had moved to America, which she did in 63, and she's a kind of a green card American. And so Bob was kind of had that in him as well. Then he has his father's thing, who's kind of like, essentially, a white Jamaican. Mm. May have had may have had some other blood as well. Mm, mm. But so he's kind of got all that kind of mixture. So he's kind of English, American, and Jamaican. This is Planner's interpretation of it. So that's one of the reasons why he is actually this international archetype. And I think there's quite a lot of truth in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Because that's what Bob is. He's an international archetype. Who's who? Everyone, people, onto whom people can project whatever they want in a way, really. And do, and do, uh, and do. Listen, what you've spoken a little bit about your relationship with him. You've spoken about his about about Richard a, a little bit, but the book. Um, what what then? In, what then inspired that? What made you think? Right, I, I'm I'm going to write a I'm going to write a book about him, um, and also the the untold story. What mm. what hadn't been told. Well, it's like, what's that song? Half the truth has never been told, which I think is actually a Peter Tosh song. That's what I felt about it. And I felt I had loads of information, as I said. You know, where, you know, it's just, it's little bits of information or big bits of information. Mm. Um, uh, that's what, that's what I, that's essentially what I have. And I felt there'd been a couple of books, which are good books. Timothy White's Catch a Fire, yeah. and a book by Stephen Davis, which I think is just called Bob Marley. <clears throat> but they're both in about 84, 85, just after Bob had died. And I thought a lot more had come out since then. 
that's why I decided to write it. And it was just, and it was a progress, as you know, a, it was various events. You know, it isn't just like you wake up one minute and think, I'm going to write this book. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd worked on it, I'd edited the, and written, actually, um, a lot of the liner notes for, you know, the Songs of Freedom box set. Mm. I'd done a photo book with a photographer, Adrian Boot had done the text for that, and it just kind of came together eventually. If if Bob was still around today, what do you think he would make of today's music industry? You know, Jamaicans are quite good at dealing with technology. So I don't think Bob would be too baffled by the concepts of streaming or even of, you know, downloading before streaming. But I'm not sure that he would... Well, you see, I was going to say, I'm not sure he'd be that involved in it because part of me sees Bob as... You know, going off to be a fisherman. You know, well, that was my next question. Do you Bay. think if, if he were in, if he if he were alive and in good health, do you think he would still be performing, or would he, as you say, be? Yeah, be yeah exactly. Well, I, well, you know, I think he might be doing a bit of each because, of course, only the other week, like last week, week before, they've re-established or not re-established, they've they've reinvigorated the pressing plant at Tough Gong Records, which is you know his mm-hmm. own label in downtown Kingston. So <clears throat> I think he would have been involved in that. You know, he'd have wanted to kind of keep the Jamaican record industry going. But yeah, there's part of me that thinks that, you know, Bob might have gone off to the off to the bush and me sitting out there, you know, doing a bit of fishing. Yeah, yeah. What a lovely what a, what a lovely image. Uh, just finally, before I let you go, Chris, because I'm I'm aware of the time, I'm aware that it's creeping towards midnight for no, you. No problem, no problem. <laughs> what from a personal point of view, how do you think that that Bob would like to have been like to have been remembered? I mean, beyond the music. I think, you know, Bob Marley is the personification of Rastafari mm. globally. Correctly or incorrectly, but he is. There's no, we know when people think of Rastafari, they think of Bob Marley and his locks. Um, and Rastafari is a kind of amorphous religion in a way, onto which people can sort of project many things. It's very fluid. But one of the um, tenets of Rastafari is that Babylon must fall. Mm. And Bob is a revolutionary. That's what he really is at heart. And, well, Right now, we're seeing some fairly momentous changes going on across the globe. And uh, I think that Bob Marley would have looked upon these with some considerable interest. Mm, mm. Although I must say that the notion of Babylon must fall, we didn't necessarily think it might fall on us. (laughs) No, quite right. A a Marley song penned about Trump would be something that I would pay (laughs) very good money to. Very good money. Quite interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Babylon system is a vampire, (laughs) as Bob sings. (laughs) Yeah, indeed, indeed. Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure, and I must thank you once again for for joining us. I I could go on and on and on and uh, and speak not just about Bob, but but, but others of of whom you are are more than knowledgeable. Uh, But I won't. I won't. I will let you go to bed. I'm I'm, I'm honoured to have talked to you on Bob's birthday. Thank you so much. You are so kind. You're so kind. And and thanks once again uh, for for joining us this evening. Thanks ever so much, Chris. Thank you so much, Sergey.